Domacast listeners. Hover would love to find a domain name for your passion. They'll automatically take 10% off your first order at the checkout using promo code JOMOCAST. My name is Christina Crook, and I am the author of The Joy of Missing Out. I want to welcome you to the JOMOCAST, a podcast for founders and creators seeking joy in a digital age. JOMO is the joy of missing out on the right things. Life-taking things like toxic hustle, comparison, disconnection, and digital drain in order to make space for life-giving commitments that bring us peace, love, meaning, and joy. Hello, JomoCast listeners. I'm doing things a little bit different today. I'm going to record the intro for this interview in advance of speaking with the guest. And I'm doing this because this whole podcast is a great, exciting experiment that you are a part of. And I'm so thrilled that you're part of this with me. So today I'm speaking with Christina Maleka. Christina Maleka is a psychotherapist from Seattle, Washington, USA. Uh, and she is also the founder of Digital Mindfulness Retreats. And I'm thrilled to have her on the podcast today because she is an expert in all things digital well-being. But one of the things we're specifically going to talk about today are the differences between parasympathetic and sympathetic states, basically resting state and fight or flight state. She's going to be talking with me today about how our online engagements affect these states, what are some best practices to remain in our ideal state. And how digital mindfulness retreats and practices can support our overall well-being. And bonus, she's also going to be leading us through a meditation to help us move into a calmer state. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Christina Maleka. Where are we speaking to you from today? Um, you are speaking to me from my, I don't know kind of living room and I'm wearing pajamas. Beautiful. Um, I'm, I have a little bit of a cold, so hopefully my voice sounds good. It sounds very good, actually. Yeah. <laughs> good. And, and, and your house is where? My house is in the middle. So I live on a in a neighborhood in Seattle called Capitol Hill, um, which is adjacent to downtown. And it's changed a lot. Um, I so I've lived on this in this neighborhood for 25 years, and Seattle, as most people know, has changed significantly. So, I live in a house that was built in 1887. It's sort of this shack. I mean, it's more of a shack actually, because housing in Seattle is really expensive. Um, and when we when we moved in, there were just a few buildings around us, and now we're completely surrounded by big, tall apartment buildings. So it's kind of like the up house, you know, if you've seen the movie Up. I have seen the movie Up. And for those of you who are listening and haven't seen it, you should watch it because it's such a heartfelt, awesome movie for children and adults alike. Yeah, it's so good. And then we have chickens and bees in our backyards. We're kind of in this little urban oasis surrounded by brand new apartment buildings. But then not too far away, we have the corporate homes of Amazon. Mm-hmm. And what is the culture, what is it like to live in a city that is the home of Amazon? Well, that's a huge part of the change. Um, that's what's really changed Seattle because Amazon, I don't even know how many people they employ here. I mean, it's really turned it into more of a tech hub city. And interestingly, 
concepts of digital wellness, digital well-being. I love how you reframe it as digital well-being. Um, it's it's taken a while. It's like a hard sell. It's mm. a hard sell in Seattle. People really love their tech. Amazon's presence here has definitely made the Seattle uh, made the city much more expensive. Um, it's made it much more posh and fancy. It used to be a little grungy. I mean, hence grunge music. Yes. So I've really, I've really seen it change. I still love Seattle, but those of us who've lived here for a long time do miss the old Seattle, but change is part of life. And I also am very supportive of urban density. Like I, I think that's really great. Um, It's just sometimes the way it's done, you know, they sort of slap up these (laughs) apartment buildings are going to look really bad in 10 years, but what can you do? I'm really grateful that I have a home that I was able to, we were able to purchase a home during non-boom time and I'm grateful to live you know to walk to work and so I can't complain too much but yeah Amazon has really changed the way the city looks and feels for sure could if you could just tell us a little bit about what you do as in like your primary day job and then also um well, what is becoming increasingly a huge part of your work, um, the digital mindfulness retreat. So you're a psychotherapist. So tell us a little bit about your practice. Yeah. I mean, you know, kind of to start, like to go back as some background, I started my career as a community organizer um, on sort of environmental justice and corporate accountability issues. So I, I see in many ways, and then I changed careers to becoming a psychotherapist in my mid 30s. I'm 52 now. Um, So I really see moving from sort of social justice organizer into therapist is going from macro social change to micro social change. Because I think when we're able to work on ourselves, we're able to show up better for the world, for other people, for the things we're passionate about. And so I consider myself sort of a politicized healer, meaning that I'm not situating pathology in individuals um, without considering systemic forces, you know, Mm -hmm. like racism, sexism, homophobia. And so that also informs my perspective on digital well-being because tech is a big outside force. Right. right. And I also, you know, work a lot with trauma and I work with an attachment lens um, and thinking about our attachment styles and how we form those styles, because research really shows that relationships heal us. I mean, literally, relationship heals, and it's crucial for humans to thrive. So, you know, I'm a helper person. Um, <laughs> obviously, there's this personality test called the Enneagram, and literally, my type is the helper. Right. We could have a whole other podcast about the ways in which that's <laughs> not helpful, but. Uh, you know, so as a psychotherapist, I've always been really focused on the most impactful and lasting ways to help people. So I have been a therapist for over 16 years. And so I was a therapist before smartphones. I was a therapist before social media. I was a therapist really before this sort of tech revolution. And I've watched my clients struggle in particular with three things. So the first thing is social media. Um, you know, you other guests have talked really eloquently about this, but you know, suddenly having this platform for social comparison, FOMO, which I'm so glad you talk about JOMO. There's so there's great things about social media. It connects people, a lot of times disenfranchised people to mm-hmm. the world. It's great for sort of introverts or people who 
have sort of different neurological wiring to connect. I mean, there's, it's not just all evil, but it also is a platform where you can always see when you're not invited. Um, right. You can see when your friends are having brunch without you, you, um, can basically have access to what your ex is doing for the rest of your life. And on social media, we're looking for validation and we're not getting it in an embodied way. And we'll, I'll talk more about what that means, but we kind of go there to feel a sense of connection, but physiologically we don't get it. And so it creates just this frustration and confusion and a lot of suffering for people that I see in my practice. And then the second thing is I've really watched the switch from phone conversations and email conversations and even more in-person conversations to texting as basically the main form of communication that we use now. And texting is really great for, I love you, or I'm running late, but it, you know, we lose so much, you know, 60 to 70% of communication is body language. So we immediately lose that context when we're texting. Um, We don't hear the person's vocal tone. And there's also no agreed upon etiquette for texts. So I just see people really suffering around, I'm not sure what this text meant. The person didn't get back to me. Um, Does that mean that they don't care? Does that mean that they're blowing me off? Is there, you know, a message in the silence or do they just forget? Mm -hmm. And then I also remember when people first started coming into therapy and talking about these like really intense conversations they were having with friends and loved ones. and you know, conflicts and really important conversations. And I realized they were happening over text message, you know? So I really saw that shift. Wow. Yeah. And just sort of a confusion and suffering that happens because of that. And then, of course, just the requirement to always be on and always available just causes a lot of stress. And, you know, we can talk a little bit about that later. You know, interestingly, you talked about Amazon Um, I've worked with a lot of people who work at Amazon and that is a company where there is really an expectation to be on 24 seven. Right. Um, and so, you know, I was working with clients one-on-one and really noticing this and helping them manage, manage their relationship with tech, but I was not really checking my own tech use. And in 2016, I took myself on a week long screen-free retreat because I was feeling burnt out and I was feeling like I needed to look at that. And it was way harder than I thought it would be. And it was also, you know, this sounds like hyperbole, but it was really life-changing. Like it was way more impactful than I thought it would be. You know, for the first three days, I was really jonesing for my screens. And towards the end of day three, you know, I'd spent time, I was on, on the Oregon coast. So I spent time in these beautiful, you know, this beautiful place. I was, had good friends there to connect with. My partner was there. About you know, I started just drop into my body and experience this like calm and clarity that I hadn't felt in a really long time and to get really clear on my true priorities and the values and start, you know, commit to a meditation practice, which I continue to this day and also just make significant changes on how I spend my time um, with technology and to create some buffers and to create some tech life balance. So came back from this and I realized one way to be a helper would be to recreate this experience for more people. So not really knowing what I was doing because I can be really impulsive and I have no, I had no marketing background or anything. Um, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this retreat. 
I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And at the time I was calling it digital detox, but I've changed that because I think that detox really makes me think about something bad, something that, you know, we have to get out of our system and, and tech is not all bad. And um, in fact, there's so many amazing things about it. And so I don't really like that framing and I'm more about creating intention. So I changed the name to digital mindfulness retreats. Um, And I basically just (laughs) rented a retreat center and did a bunch of work and people came, you know, people showed up and I loved it. I kind of just was like, this is an incredible experience. I love facilitating group process and meaningful experiences for people. So digital mindfulness retreats were born. I've, I've, um, so my first retreat was at the beginning of 2018 and I've held four since then. And, you know, as you know, I'm working on making that a sustainable, you know, sustainable business because retreats aren't super profitable, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I've learned, but you know, I'm also expanding into doing custom retreats for people and doing more sort of wellness events, digital well-being, digital wellness events for organizations in Seattle. So that's a long, that's my long story about how I got into this. Thank you. That was a beautiful, a beautiful start and hopefully given people a lot to begin thinking about. And I think you painted a really beautiful picture of a lot of the stories that I think we are all living in terms of some of the people, you know, you shared some of the stories of the people that are coming into your office, your own personal story of um, having not a point of crisis, but a, you may, making a choice to disconnect and, and give yourself what you needed and finding more than, you know, maybe you expected to find. And as many of the people listening would self-identify as a founder or a creator. All of us are trying to figure out a way (laughs) to make our passion sustainable and to put, you know, models around our work. uh, Yeah. To both serve and also to um, sustain our lives. So um, those are all things that we are in the midst of. I'm curious to hear uh, what it's like for you to have an entire day or weekend with people versus an hour um, in your practice and what you're able to sort of move people through? Because I know you are an incredible facilitator. Could you just share maybe just one of the things that you love about having more of that space? We need time. And I can talk a little bit about sort of these nervous system states we get in when we um, are spending a lot of the time on our screens. But really, you know, the idea of retreat goes way back. I mean, I think it goes back to sort of um, uh, religious contemplative traditions. And we, it's just so helpful to get space. It's so helpful to get space to step back and call, you know, move into a calm state, move into a relaxed state. So these retreats are held in beautiful natural locations you know, the woods or the ocean. Um, I give people, you know, I, I just work to move people into a place where they can really engage this calm contemplative state. And we need more time. I think, you know, if we want to be spending less time on screens, we have to, we have to have a sense of what else it is that's where it's important to us. And so one piece with the retreats is I really work with people to help them to focus on what is meaningful? What brings them joy? Um, you know, going back to your your passion for joy, who are that? Who and what do they want to show up for in their life? So it really gives people a chance to just step back and reconnect with who they are. And I think that that is the most powerful piece in helping people to have more tech life balance. 
um, just to have that time to contemplate that. And then there's also a huge emphasis on relationship building in the retreats. I love it. Yeah. I have a quote here I want to read is very short. And then I want to get into a discussion about parasympathetic and mm-hmm. sympathetic states mm-hmm. with you, because I think that's something well, I know you're an expert on and, and um, it's an important conversation. So the quote is from Eknath Iswaran, and I can't remember where I found it, but I found it a long time ago. And the quote is, lasting change happens when people see for themselves that a different way of living is more fulfilling than their present one. Yes, absolutely. That's what it's all about. We need an experience. We need to be able to see for ourselves that a different way of living is possible. And I think beyond even seeing it, we need to have a taste of it. We need to experience it because it ignites in us a hunger, right? A desire for more of that so that we can pursue it. It can't just be an intellectual thing. We're like, I know that I need that. I know that I should want that. But actually in the core of who I am, I don't have that desire because it's just easier to keep doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And so I I love the ways in which you're creating spaces for people to ignite those desires. It's heady stuff. For me as a facilitator, it's so beautiful to watch that happen for people. I mean, it's profound. I come back from my retreats feeling high, you know, just feeling so connected, so joyous. It's such a privilege to facilitate those experiences. So we spend a lot of our time, I don't know what the percentage of our time is, and maybe you get into that um, in a little bit as we get get into this conversation, but we spend a lot of our time, a lot of our days, a lot of our weeks, months, years in a state of stress, right? And so can you talk to us a bit about these different states that our our bodies can be in and and ways that we can move in and out of that in in a more healthy way? Absolutely. And I can really geek out on this stuff. So feel free free to stop me if I'm just going on and on. Um, And also, I just want to say, you know, disclaimer, I am not a neuroscientist. Um, And I also, you know, so I also tried to break this down in a way that's more accessible because the brain and the nervous system are incredibly complex. And so this is going to be sort of rudimentary and basic, but hopefully it will sort of be accessible to people to understand. So we have, so we have, I'm going to talk about parasympathetic nervous system states and sympathetic nervous system states. And these are both branches of the autonomic nervous system in our body. And the autonomic nervous system is responsible for sort of involuntary functions of our body. And it works in the background without our conscious awareness, unless we pay attention. So the sympathetic nervous system or SNS, um, this controls our body's response to perceived threat. So it's responsible for the fight or flight response. We hear, we hear so much about it. And it, it feels like panic when it's fully activated and like stress when it's chronic. And so when we're in that sympathetic nervous system state, we have an increase in our heart rate and constriction of the heart. Our muscles contract stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol release into our body. And interesting, it shuts down the processes not critical for survival, like executive function and critical thinking. Executive function is basically the way we talk about the CEO of the brain, the part of your brain that can make sense of things. Um, So when we're in that state, we react rather than responding. Reaction is like what we do right away when we're in a stress state. Responding is what we do when we have time to contemplate and think about 
what we want to do. So that's sympathetic. Parasympathetic nervous system or PNS, that controls our bodily homeostasis. And it's responsible for this rest, digest, connect function of our body. It's opposite of the sympathetic state. It causes our muscles to relax and our heart rate to decrease. It feels like slipping into a warm bath. And this is this is also the state where we we are most socially engaged. Um, and you know, also the state mm. we need to be in to enjoy sex, which, which is important. So from that state, we can respond rather than reacting. And so these two states generally don't function very well at the same time. And when we're faced with perceived imminent danger, um, the body basically diverts blood flow from these parasympathetic nerve functions like digestion to the sympathetic functions like muscle contraction, heavy breathing, et cetera. So I have, I have a theory, this is kind of a digression, but this is a cause, this is just a theory. I don't know if anyone's done any research on this, but I feel like this might be the cause of sort of the uptick of flakiness and last minute cancellation of plans um, that we hear a lot about and we experience a lot because I think our bodies feel like we have spent all day protecting ourselves against threats. Um, and we, we end up feeling too exhausted to show up for each other for embodied connection. Um, if I'm overworking and spending too much time on my phone, I feel much more tempted to cancel plans, you know, for dinner with a friend. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, the soup, the sympathetic nervous system is rooted at the bottom of our brainstem, which people talk about as sort of the lizard brain. It's the oldest part of the human brain. You know, it's the one that first formed when we were basically evolving and it's not very smart. So it, often can't tell the difference between a tiger chasing us and the pressure to answer a call or a text from a colleague. So that's why we're so exhausted. Okay, there's so much there already. And I know you're just getting warmed up, which is amazing. Okay, so I am thinking right now uh, about respond versus react and how much of our day is in a state of reaction. We're reacting to all the inbound messages. Maybe if we just focused on that for a minute. I've been thinking about that a lot. I used to be very disciplined, almost anal retentive about if anyone tried to message me any other way than basically by email or by calling me, I was like, no, no, that's not what I do. I would respond to a Facebook message every single time and say, uh, please email me. And, and, but then I kind of felt like, okay, maybe I need to relax this a little bit. But when you do that, you have so many inputs from so many different places. And how can you exist in any other way than being reactive, respond, you know, reacting constantly to inbound messages? First of all, notifications and alerts. Um, we see those little red notifications they result in this release of stress hormones that engage our sympathetic fight or flight response. And interestingly, and I'll talk about that in a second. Interestingly, I don't know if you you know this, but you probably do. Facebook alerts, when Facebook first came out, they used to be blue, like all of the alerts, and nobody was clicking on them. So they changed them to red, which is mm -hmm. an alert color, and engagement skyrocketed. So these notifications from our phones are sort of training our brains to be in this near constant state of stress and fear. And the more time we basically we're responding to non-emergencies 
as if they were emergencies. Um, because so that the more we do that, the more we wire our brains for this response. And we have as humans a really deep drive for social approval. And this is rooted at the bottom of our brain stems since Paleolithic times. If you think about it, for early humans, social approval meant survival. You know, if we were, we're in these small hunter-gatherer groups, and if we didn't get along with our fellow hunters or gatherers, basically we, had, we ran the risk of being cast out and dying. So this piece around social approval feels like a, it's survival for humans. And actually, we are wired for deep emotional connection. Loneliness is a growing problem that actually causes a lot of health problems and early death. Um, and we also know that infants who aren't, you know, for them, social engagement is touch, gaze, holding. There's something called failure to thrive, um, mm-hmm. you know. So this is super important. And social media in particular exploits this with like buttons, these platforms for social comparison and performative belonging. but also. It's one of the reasons why we might respond to, you know, why why we might feel like so much panic about responding to a notification, because somewhere down there is is this unconscious thought of like, if I don't respond to this, people aren't going to like me, and I could die. You know what I mean? Like, right. um, And then there's also the intermittent positive reinforcement piece. People have talked a lot about that. You know, we know from this longstanding psychological research that rewards that are delivered unpredictably are a lot more enticing than those delivered consistently. So you hear this about the um, experiments with the rats and the rat pellets. And if you gave rats pellets consistently, they would just kind of lose interest. But if you gave pellets intermittently, the rats just get like super anxious and excited. and um, really, really obsessed <laughs> with the food stores. So because when we're when things are unpredictable, we get this release of dopamine, which is a pleasure hormone. And so that, you know, that kind of keeps us constantly checking our phones and in this sort of compulsive state of both pleasure and anxiety. And, you know, you know, formal, former Google executive Tristan Harris, um, you know, famously said that smartphones are like slot machines in our pockets. And I that's literally true. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, uh, when people come into my office, they will want to clutch their phone and have it sitting next to them on the couch next to them. And I started to ask them to, I'm going to probably get some sort of little container for the phones, but I've started to ask them to like put it out of, put it out of reach, um, to not have it with them and not have them as this appendage, uh, because, you know, we know that even having a smartphone visible degrades the just quality of the human interaction. So we're all in it. We're all clutching our phones like talismans. This episode is brought to you by Hover.com. Everyone's got their thing. My thing is the joy of missing out and Hover's is the joy of free domain registration privacy. Hover is an incredible company actually based here in Canada, which is where I live. And I use Hover for all of my domain registration and I have for years and years. I'm thrilled that they are here on board with the JomoCast in the very first season. And as a listener, you can go to hover.com 
forward slash JomoCast to get your next great idea registered in a domain at Hover. So thank you to Hover for sponsoring season one of the JomoCast. Well, I feel like we've kind of led a little bit into the next question I had for you, which was how do our online engagements affect these states? So we've talked a bit about that. Is there anything more you'd like to say about that? Yeah, I could geek out forever, but I'd love to talk about how we move out of those things. Yes, let's talk about that. So what are some best practices to remain in our ideal state? Well, I mean, first thing is to put your phone on silent and put it out of your reach. Um, so you don't have that st- state of stress, you know, in addition to your laptop or whatever other devices you use. And there's a bunch of things. So the first one is just to engage and slow your breath by taking deep, full breaths. So Doreen um, Doggin-McGee, who's this woman I, I just recently met, who you've got to meet, she's really amazing. She wrote this book called Device, which is probably the best, most well-researched book on how technology impacts us psychologically. And I went to a presentation and she really had this really simple thing where you breathe as if you breathe through your nose like you're smelling roses. And then you blow out like you're blowing out birthday candles. And if you do that for 60 seconds, it will kick you into a parasympathetic nervous system state. It's like nature's Xanax, basically. (laughs) So the second thing is relaxing your body. And, um, you know, when I, I start all of my therapy sessions with a one minute breathing meditation. And one of the first things I do, and we can do a meditation here too, is I I basically have people relax the muscles in their face to relax their shoulders because we carry our shoulders up around our ears to relax parts of parts of their, you know, their hands. Um, And I have, you know, I just want to say that I have so many resources on these tools that I'm happy to, I'm happy to share for free. You know, someone can call me and I'll have a 15 minute conversation with you. I can send resources. I feel really passionate about helping people with this. So. Um, the other thing is engaging your five senses. So in working with trauma, um, you know, I work with a lot of clients who've experienced trauma and sometimes people move quickly into that panic state, the sympathetic nervous system state. And the best way to move them back to the present moment and back into their bodies and back into, you know, the parasympathetic, sometimes I get these confused. Anyway, the relaxed state is to walk them through five senses. So this increases present moment and bodily awareness, and it's something we can all do. And sometimes I forget what my five senses are, so I just count them <laughs> on my fingers. And I also want to say that some people have fewer than five senses, um, and some people have more. So that's a really great way. Spending time in nature. So there is this research um, around attention restoration theory that was... Um, done by psychologists Rachel and Stephen Kaplan in the 80s. And what they found is that spending time in nature or even looking at pictures of nature um, actually decreases overstimulation and it increases concentration. It reduces mental fatigue and physiological stress. It increases our capacity for social connection and it can change negative states into positive ones. So this is why digital mindfulness retreats are held in beautiful natural locations, like the woods or the mountains or the ocean. Um, And then you also want to engage your thinking mind. So 
like I said before, you know, or like your contemplative mind. Like I said before, when we're in the sympathetic state, our prefrontal cortex, which is the CEO of the brain, shuts down. And so we're once again in that state of reacting. And so if we can engage with self-reflection through journaling, reading something inspiring, contemplation, meditation, prayer, it helps us to develop intention. And, you know, another piece is just gratitude practice. Um, Gratitude practice is not just the sort of woo-woo thing, you know, it, it wires, it basically wires our brain to counter negativity. So we have a natural negativity bias in our brain that also goes back to early humanity where we had to be constantly scanning the horizon for threats. And so if you practice gratitude on a daily basis, you actually create more capacity for countering that negativity bias. And gratitude isn't about bright sighting. It's basically about being ha- having some balance. And so every day I, I actually have a practice of naming 10 things I'm grateful for. I try not to do the same thing every day. And if I'm stuck, I'll think about really obvious things. Like paper clips are so cool. <laughs> I have really exciting push pins on my cork board in my office. So I would be saying a grateful, great gratitude for those. Yeah. And like indoor plumbing, you know, you can go back and think about things. My that- tiny plant yeah. that I'm looking at in my office. Yes. Like grateful for that. You know, and so much has also been said about boredom and how important boredom is um, to make space for creativity and insight. And we just don't have enough time these days to be bored. And, you know, it also just offers us this really important time to reflect on our lives and what's truly important to us. Going back to that, we really need to be quiet to truly know ourselves. And I remember as a kid, going on road trips with my family and not, you know, at that time we didn't have, I couldn't read because I get car sick when I read. Me too. Yeah. And so I remember I have such great memories of sitting in the car and looking out the window and developing my personhood, like literally coming to know myself as a person. And we just don't get that anymore. And so allowing that and then in addition to engaging your thinking mind, of course, moving your body um, is really important. And there's so many benefits to that. But I'm saving the best for last, the meditation, right? Okay. So it's the best practice by far to help us become aware of these nervous system states. So I talked about how they sort of work in the background. Um, meditation can actually help us notice them more consciously rather than just being an autopilot all the time. So you know, sitting in the present moment really reminds us of our humanity and our presence and our capacity to connect with others. And it, it reduces stress pretty significantly. And also, this is so cool, research shows that sustained meditation practice, say you meditate for 10 minutes a day for six months, can actually increase gray matter in the areas of the brain that are responsible for sustained attention, self-control, compassion and bodily awareness, which are all things that tend to degrade when we spend a lot of time on our screens. So mindfulness is the opposite of distraction and why I focus on that piece in my work. Um, it provides really the best possible rewiring for these our tech stressed brains and bodies. So those are some tools 
to get into that, those states. And I'd love to talk more. Okay. Those are all amazing. I have written them all down and I'll make sure that they're included in the show notes. But Christina, could you lead us through a meditation right now? I can. I really, I want to encourage people, you know, if you're listening to this in the car, obviously you can't do this, but you could pull over right now. Pull over. I really encourage you rather than just blowing through this and listening to it, if possible, to engage in this meditation. It's going to be less than 10 minutes um, just to get a sense of what I'm talking about. Before we enter right in, just maybe a reminder for those of us who are new to mindfulness or meditation practice that just reiterating what Christina said previously that um, mindfulness, meditation are the opposite of distraction. So you've probably spent a lot of time, like me, distracted today by a mess of things. And so right now you're giving yourself permission to come out of that state and enter into a state of well-being. Yeah. Okay. I want to say there's no right or wrong wrong way to do this. Um, this. If this is your first time meditating... Just let it be what it is. And so what you want to do is you want to start by sitting in an upright but relaxed position. You can kind of think about when you inhale, you're you're straightening your spine in a relaxed way. It's sort of like things are moving up. And when you exhale, you're you're basically relying on that structure, that architecture of your spine to melt your muscles down, to drape them over your skeleton. So that's one way to think about how you're sitting, both feet on the floor, grounded on the floor. And you start with your eyes open and just looking at points around the room. Noticing your environment. And then move your focus down to your hands and your lap as if you're reading a book. So this is moving more inward. And then close your eyes. And relax your forehead. And your temples. And the muscles around your eyes. Your cheeks. Your jaw. Let your jaw drop open. Melt your shoulders down. Release your belly and let your thighs sink into the chair. And this is a Vipassana meditation, which means that you're focusing on your breath. The breath is like a target as we meditate. And while you're doing this, your mind is going to wander in a million ways. And the goal is just to notice that without judgment. And bring your awareness back to the breath. And so focus on your breath right now as it moves in and out of your nostrils. And then move your focus as it moves in and out of your lungs. Fill your lungs. Expand and contract as you breathe. 
And then focus on your breath as it expands and contracts your belly. See if you can allow that to be a full body breath. And now you've experienced these sort of different places to center your breath. You can just move to where the breath feels most comfortable for you. So you're not thinking about it so much. And at this point, your mind may be wandering. That's what minds do. Know that thinking is normal. And when you notice a thought or a worry or planning, just label it. Thinking, planning, and let it just float away. We're just coming back to the breath over and over again. It's kind of like doing mental push-ups to train us to notice our thoughts without getting swept away. Imagine that you can breathe underwater. And you're sitting at the bottom of the ocean. And at the bottom of the ocean, it's clear and calm. There's beautiful aquatic plants, really cool, colorful fish. It's too deep for sharks. It's too deep for stingrays. It's so peaceful. And you're aware that at the surface of the ocean, there's just the tide. There are cruise ships and sharks and warships and hurricanes and just basically the general motion of the ocean. And that is like your thought. And the deep, dark spot in the ocean is your present moment awareness. So can you have that relationship to your thought? Can you be in that relaxed state while also being aware of those thoughts? from a more distant place in this present moment. Another way to think about this is to imagine that you're sitting on a riverbank and you're watching the water go by and your thoughts of the river and you're just observing the river. You're not looking upstream or downstream. Just sitting in that ground space on the riverbank, focusing on your breath, just letting the river flow by. Focusing on this breath in the present moment. And then this breath.
And then this breath. Just sitting quietly. Noticing what's happening without judgment, with full acceptance of where you are and who you are in this moment. And then becoming aware of the sounds that you hear in the room, in the space where you are. You might notice that there are sounds you weren't consciously aware of. You might notice the peace of silence. Just focusing on what you hear. And then shifting your focus to smells in the room. Smells are so evocative of memories and emotion. Notice the smells or absence of smells with curiosity and acceptance. And then focus on your sense of touch and embodiment. Noticing your feet on the floor, your body on the chair, the air against your skin, your hands on your lap. And even though you're not tasting something right now, or maybe you are, notice your sense of taste, the taste in your mouth without judgment, the memory of something you recently tasted that was delicious, being present and grateful for your sense of taste. And then next, with your eyes still closed, focus on the what you see behind your eyelids. It may be some visuals that come into your mind. Then very slowly open your eyes. And look around the room. Just taking in what you see in the room. And reorienting yourself back into the world. And then taking the deepest breath you've taken all day. And blowing it out. And thanking yourself for taking this time. And when you're ready, you can come back to this conversation, back to the present moment, back to the flow of your life and thoughts.
but really notice if you had a state change, if you feel different, what it feels like to have taken that time for yourself. And this concludes our meditation. I'm so reluctant to come out of <laughs> out of that state. It feels weird to drop back into an interview, but thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, you're welcome. Christina, where can we learn more about your work and your upcoming digital mindfulness retreats? Oh, okay. It's hard for me to drop back in too. Right? <laughs> so you can learn more about my work by going to my website, which is digitalmindfulnessretreats.com or dmret.com. And people can learn, you have um, a number of resources there. I know one is a do-it-yourself digital mindfulness retreat, which is amazing. I've read through the material and it's just, it's awesome. Yeah. And I really wanted to make what I do accessible to everyone because not everyone can afford, I'm really working on starting to raise funds for scholarships for the retreats. Um, but I know that not everyone can afford the time or the money. And so I wanted this to be accessible to everyone. So that's why I created the DIY guide and it's on my website. And then for people to learn more and register for your upcoming retreats, they can do that as well on the site, right? Yep. So again, digitalmindfulnessretreats.com. If you have a niggling desire to learn more, absolutely follow that intuition and learn more and hopefully sign up. Christina, thank you so much for being with me today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I know that the people listening um, have gotten a lot out of what you presented today. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening. You can learn more about our guests in the show notes and by visiting jomocast.com. The Jomocast is edited and produced by Thomas J. Inge, musician and composer by day, podcast ninja by night. Special thanks to writer Rebecca Wigand, musician Peter Katz, and educator Adam Kaplan for their practical and moral support creating this season of the podcast. The Jomocast is listener-supported. When you sign up as a patron at patreon.com forward slash JomoCast, you'll get access to many bonus episodes with me and digital sociologist, Dr. Jess Piriam. Plus, we'll send you a Jomo Manifesto letterpress print, stickers, and a handwritten card in the mail because I believe in the power of the personal. Plus, snail mail is just one of the most joyful things on earth. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you subscribe. And a five-star spectacular. Do you want more Jomo? Go to experiencejomo.com to sign up for a free week of Jomo quests to get you started on your journey. As always, remember, there is joy missing out on the right things. I'm your host, Christina Crook. Thanks for listening.